his own chariot and went to meet Jehu and met him at the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Hosea, Treachery, O Hosea. And Jehu drew his board, bow with full strength, and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart and he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab, his father, how the Lord made this pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the bloods of his son, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. Now therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. Our New Testament reading is Revelation 2, 18 to 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have, what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him... I will give authority over the nations, and he will rue them with the rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you. Yes, sorry, sorry, forgot the last part. You can be seated. <laughs> Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we bow before you and, and we give you thanks for this, your word, and we ask your blessing upon us, Lord, as it is spoken, and Lord, as it is heard, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you are exalted and that you are pleased to root your word, deepen your word and into the hearts of your people, and may you be glorified. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. We're in the 
this series of sermons on, on the gospel and, and human sexuality. And, and by the way, there is a Sunday school class that be, that's starting next Sunday to continue the discussion on some of these issues. And the class, the class is entitled, Loving Your LGBTQ Neighbors. But thus far in this series, we've learned that, that our bodies and our, our genders is for the Lord. Now that's good news. That's good, that's good news for, for our sexuality. And, it, and we've also learned that it's good news for our, the gospel is good news for our sexuality because our identity doesn't rest in our sexuality or our emotions, the emotions that one might experience surrounding our sexuality, but they, our identity is in Christ. And today, well, that we are seeing, we want to see that the gospel is good news for our sexuality in that Christ takes sexually broken people and makes them his disciples. God does it. Christ does that. It's, that's good news this morning that the disciples of Christ are made up of sexually broken people. And we've been saying that when Jesus rose from the dead and he says to his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he means his authority. He has authority over our bodies, over our gender, over our sexuality as well. That sexual revolution began with Jesus' resurrection. Now, Christ's followers brought about a powerful change in the world that upset the culture with the introduction of the idea of, of fleeing sexual immorality. And that phrase, sexual immorality, is one word in the Greek. It's porneia, and it's, it's a word from which, which, from which we get our word pornography. But it has a far deeper meaning than the way that that word is used today. It has, it, it has in mind, porneia has in mind, every kind of perversity that was practiced and imagined. So Cal Harper is a, is a, uh, a historian of, of sex in in the first century and, and how Christianity impacted. And, and in his book, From Shame to Sin, he talks about how significant that word porneia is. He says the significance of porneia in historical terms was precisely that it gave a single name to an array of extramarital sexual configurations not limited to, but especially including prostitution. Asking what pornei means is like asking how a fumigation bomb is shaped. The word was destined to diffuse and poison all the air in the zone of free access between male laxity and female honor, which in antiquity occupied such an important place in the sexual economy. And now you might wonder, what in the world did that just say? <laughs> yeah, well, so, so, so if you, have, if you have a home that's filled with roaches you, and you, try, you want to get rid of them, you, know, you buy one of these bombs. They have a bomb, that they, that they, and, they, and they actually call it a bomb. Uh, and, and, and you set it off, you've got to leave your home when you do it. You, you can't stay in there. You know, it might kill you too. <laughs> I mean, that must be some pretty bad stuff. I mean, you know, because they say that cockroaches live even if there's a nuclear holocaust. So what are you setting off in your home? You know, you know anyway. I digress, but, but, but you, know, you, you, you set this off and it, it fills the air in the house that, and that it, so that it kills all of the bugs with its poison. 
Christianity and its idea of, of complete hostility towards Pornei poisoned the air of the culture to expose and kill the sexual immorality that overran the cities and, and the towns. Now, but you know, for sure, it was a battle, and the early church had to be had to be on guard for seductive teaching. And it's seductive, seductive teaching that suggests, isn't it, isn't it, is, it's, it's not that bad to mix your faith with other religious practices, is it? Is it you know, you, you can be a Christian and engage in sexual immorality since you're free in Christ, right? It's kind, kind of like the, what that survey showed us about, about what evangelicals believe. It's kind of like that, that gender is, is is not biologically fixed by God, but is determined by your feelings. See, you can, be, you can be a Christian and believe that gender is a matter of choice, right? See, that's precise, this is precisely the kind of seduction that Jezebel was teaching in the church at Thyatira. When was the last time you heard a sermon on Jezebel? <laughs> not a common topic. And there's a reason why no one names their, child, their child Jezebel, too. Uh, but he said, so, so the, but this, this Jezebel was setting this teaching off in the church at Thyatira, and it was being tolerated. So the question is, how can you, how can you faithfully follow Jesus in this environment? Christ calls sexually broken people to follow him away from the culture and into a glorious eternal relationship with him. Discipleship for the sexually broken is to steward your sexuality in a way that honors Christ and his word. Right now, so we're talking about discipleship for the sexually broken, how the gospel is good news for sexually broken people. And what discipleship, how, how, how do you steward your sexuality in such a way that it honors Christ and his word? Well, to do that, you have to know that you're seen by Jesus, but beware of the seduction of Jezebel, understanding there's grace in the space of repentance. And since Jesus is our reward, stand fast. And those, those, that, that's the outline. That's, that's where we're going. So the first thing is, is if, you're going, if you're stewarding your sexuality in a way that honors Christ, is you have to know that you are seen by Jesus. Look at verses 18 and 19. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the, son, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. See, these verses tell the sexually broken that you are seen by Jesus truly and intimately. You're seen by Jesus. His eyes are like a flame of fire. That means his gaze is pure and, and it sees right through you. His, his look is righteous and true. He sees things justly. Jesus sees you. And it's hard, 
It's hard to withstand his gaze since he sees right down to the very bottom of who you are. And when you know Jesus sees you, you can't take his gaze. You can't take his gaze because it's so pure. There's a good example of this in the scripture. In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, there's Peter. Peter, Peter, he knows that he is seen by Jesus. And, 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 and the story, you know the story. The story is that the disciples, they've been fishing all night and they've caught nothing. They were, they were about to call it a day when Jesus wanted to use their boat to preach from. And for a thank you, he tells them, go deep. Launch out into the deep. And Peter, Peter said, look, we're fishermen, we've caught nothing, we've been out here all night, and we haven't caught anything, but since you said so, we'll do it one more time. And they caught so many fish, and he's, Jesus recognized he's seen, Jesus sees him, and look at Peter's response in verse 8. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, you see, it's, it is impossible to withstand Jesus' gaze without his grace because he sees you truly, and he also sees you intimately. He, sees, he says, I know your works. Uh, he's, he's saying, I have regard for your work. I cherish your faith and service. I pay attention to your patient endurance. That's what that word know means. And see, you need to know, you need to know that you are seen intimately by Jesus. See, Jesus, he's seeing, he, is, he is saying, I see your motives for your work. I see, I see your passion in your work. I know the conviction that you have in your heart for your work. I see your endurance while you work. I see you. You see, if you're, and if you are sexually broken, you're a disciple of Christ, it is immensely important for you to, to know that Jesus sees you because it says you are known. And being known is what you and I were made for. And not, not just known by anybody. Because see, that, you know, so the meat market guy at Redner's knows me. <laughs> but that won't get me anywhere. <laughs> you know, you know, but it's who, by whom you're known. You're known by the Son of God. Did you, know, did you notice that? Did you know that this is the only, uh, the only one of the seven letters that are written to the churches that refers to Jesus as the Son of God? And why is that? Because it, remi it reminds the church, and you know, these letters were distributed to all the churches, it reminds the church that he alone is God. See, in Thyatira, one of the things that they did was they mixed their business and religion and their sexuality all together. And Apollos was the, was, was the big God, and you know, he was the patron God. And so, so Jesus, addressing this very issue, he said, I am God, Apollo is not my equal. He's not his equal. Christ has no rivals. He is God with us. And you need to know that his words and his gaze are meant to make you feel what he thinks of you and his plan to make you holy as he is holy. Oh, see, that's good news for the sexually broken. 
Jesus loves you as you are, but he loves you enough that he's not going to leave you the way you are. Hallelujah. Because, so, so, so Jesus, his, his plan, he plans to make us exclusively his bride, his church, without spot or blemish or wrinkle. Because he sees his disciples truly and intimately, he sees just what needs to be addressed in our fellowship. So beware the seduction of Jezebel. In verse, look at verse 20 and 21. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. You see, the city life of Thyatira was such that, that it was a place of industry whose trade guild, where trade guilds in, in metalworking and, and textiles thrived. You recall Lydia in Acts chapter 16. And Lydia, she's, she's, she's from Thyatira. She's a seller of purple, the text tells us. And why is that? Because it was, so this, this was the industry. Every commentary that I read that, that talked about the city of Thyatira commented on the practice of, of worshiping idols to maintain your status with the local trade guild. And these trade guilds often had pagan gods as their patrons, as we referenced earlier, Apollo. You know, and, 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 and it also carried with it uh, these, this, these sexual immorality. Pornea, was, was, it, was a part of, it was a part of the worship, it was a part of the practice, and it had economic impact. And Christians were getting involved in these practices that included that sexual immorality. So this text is teaching us and telling us that right doctrine matters for your sexuality. Right doctrine matters for your sexuality. Because what was happening in the church is that woman, whom John calls Jezebel, was seducing people away from the truth. And that word translated seducing means to lead off the path, to lead astray. In other words, she was causing people to... to, to, to to, to forsake the purity of the gospel, to forsake the, pur the purity and, and, the, and the truth and the wholesomeness that is there in Christ, causing them to admit sexual immorality spiritually and physically. But that's, that's just a little compromise. That's all. Now, how does, how does she seduce and manipulate like that? Well, so Jezebel has power, so that, that whether it was an actual person or not, you know, no one, no one is, is, is clear about that, but she's certainly the, the, the picture and the metaphor and uh, hearkening back to Jezebel in 2 Kings is, is a powerful one because Jezebel has power. She calls herself a prophetess who teaches and seduces. She has authority and she has words. She has a, she has a platform to speak from. And like Jezebel in the Old Testament reading, she, was the, she, was a, she, she broke up the shalom. She was a disturber of the, the peace. You know the story. You know, Jezebel, she was the queen. She had, she had the power of the government behind her seduction. She would kill you if you didn't participate in the cult worship of Baal. She slaughtered the prophets of God. Isn't that the threat she made to Elijah? And so when, when Jehu, the, the newly anointed king is, is, uh, of Israel, he comes riding into town, Joram, 
who was the reigning king. Joram had been injured in a fight with, uh, with, with Haziel, the king of, of Syria. And so he's recuperating. He's recuperating while he's reigning. And so the text reads this way. And when Joram saw Jehu, he said, Is it peace, Jehu? He answered, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Yeah, you see, there, Jezebel is power drunk, power drunk, and power drunk people seek to seduce and, and lead you astray from the truth. And sometimes they're in government. Sometimes they're on social media. Sometimes they're in pulpits. Yeah, so, but, but power drunk people disturb the shalom. They disrupt the peace, seducing you acting like Jezebel, seeking to, to move you away from Jesus, leading you off the path. And just like in the days of the church in Thyatira, they do it for economic reasons. It's all about the Midianmans. But you know what should capture the disciples who are sexually broken? What should capture their attention? The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, still calls them my servants. He graciously contends and comes after his servants. Does that tell you how much Jesus loves you? He loves you even though you are unfaithful. He is faithful still. Hallelujah. And do you know what makes the distinction between Jesus' servants and Jezebel? Repentance. Repentance. Jezebel refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. And say, so, oh, see, so we can't miss the graciousness of the Lord here that's, that he's giving to her. He's giving to her space. I love the way the King James says that, space to repent. That it, it is time, time, space to repent, but she refuses. And the refusal to repent marks her that she is not one of Christ's servants. She's among the servants of Christ, but not one in her heart. See, in Christ's disciples, they repent when he calls to them. So there's grace. This is point number three. There's grace in the space of repentance. Look at verses 22 and 23. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. You see, the gospel is good news for the sexually broken because there is grace in the space of repentance. We see that Jezebel was graciously given this space and this time to repent, but she refused. And now the text is filled with, it's filled with warnings of judgment, being thrown onto a sickbed along with those who commit adultery with her. Great tribulation and striking her children dead. You see, yeah, the Lord ordains judgment. And the very things, and here's God, God's wisdom and, and his sovereign power, the, it's always the very things that one uses to commit sin with is the very thing that is their judgment. The adulterer uses the bed to commit sexual immorality. They're thrown on the sick bed. This, is a, this principle is in the, it's all through the Old, Old Testament. In Psalm chapter 9, verse 15 and 16, it says this. The nations have sunk in the pit 
that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. I said Ahab is a picture of that. Ahab, who under, under Jezebel's encouragement, remember, he killed Naboth. He killed Naboth and his family to take their land. He, and and he, he did. He, he took the land. They, they killed him, and the Lord pronounced judgment on him that his family was going to die. And this is what Jehu is referring to. He's like, I was there. I heard it. As surely as I say yesterday, the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. The land he coveted became his grave. You see, that's God. That, that God ordains the judgment. And the judgment that comes is so that the, the churches, the text says, that the churches will know that the Lord is the one who searches hearts. God is the one who, who probes our hearts. And here's, here's, here's what the text is telling us. And, 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 you know, you hear this all the time from people. You can't judge me. Only God can judge me. And I wonder often when folks say that, do you know what God are you talking about? Be careful what you wish for. Because if, if you're talking about the God of the scriptures, be careful what you wish for. Because he does judge everyone. He does judge everyone. And right now, he is giving you space to repent. And you might say, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to scare me into repentance. I'm not. But you ought to know, you ought to know enough to be scared. That's a great Lord of the Rings line. <laughs> no, yeah, you, you, don't, you don't know enough to be scared. But you ought to be scared if you reject the grace that's in the space of repentance. You see, maybe, maybe you're experiencing discomfort because folks aren't using your choice of pronouns that you prefer. That's not the worst thing that can happen to you. Maybe, maybe, maybe you're feeling threatened and, and, and tempted and, and, and you're threatening to take your own life because you feel trapped in a body that you don't like. That's not the worst thing that can happen to you. You see, the worst thing that can happen to you is that you don't repent. You're sexually broken and that brokenness has you thinking all kind of things. It has you feeling all kinds of things. But what you're thinking and what you're feeling is not the worst that can happen to you. Not repenting. When you are graciously given the space, that's the worst thing that can happen. You see, the lack of repentance is where the judgment falls on you. I like the encouragement that the Westminster Confession of Faith get, reminds us of and, and calls us to it. It says we must repent of our sin in general and our particular sins particularly. That is, that is, we ought to grieve for our sin, hate our sin, turn from our sin unto God, and endeavor to walk with God in obedience to his commandments. You see, repentance is needed as long as we are in these bodies. But like, like the time for repentance will come to an end, so also will these bodies and our brokenness. Hallelujah. 
Therefore, remember, yeah, therefore, remember, Jesus is our reward. This is the last point, so stand fast. Look at verses 24 through 29. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning stars. He, the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see, this letter to the church at Thyatira ends with some amazing promises and, and some conditions of grace. And the conditions of grace are meant to enable them to persevere until the promises are fulfilled. Now remember, these are, these are people who are suffering for Christ. Jesus said, I know your patient endurance. The first conditions of the grace, of the first conditions of grace is this. He says to hold fast what you have, meaning those works of love and, and faith and service and patient endurance. In other words, don't let the things slip. Don't let these things slip because you're under the pressure of persecution. And he tells them why. Because your future rule is connected to and it depends on your faithfulness right now. Your future rule depends on faithfulness right now. Do you hear that promise? You will rule over nations. You say, wait a minute, I flip hamburgers at McDonald's. Flip them faithfully because of what it is that God is, God is building in you. See that? This, so, so for them in their context, it meant dealing with Jezebel, putting her and her children out of the church. In other words, there is no other way to deal with unrepentant sexual immorality but to put it out. It's so pernicious and it's so destructive that it must be removed. The second condition of grace is to, con is, is to conquer and to keep Christ's works to the end. And, and those two ideas go together, to conquer and keeping Christ's work. What do, well, we sang it earlier, faith, faith is the victory. But what does it mean to keep Christ's work? You remember in, in John chapter 6 when, when Jesus, Jesus is talking about himself, he's talking about his follower, he's talking, he's, he's, he's talking to his disciples, telling them how, how much they need him. They need him because he's the bread of life and, they, and, and, and that he has come to do the Father's work and that the Father is working in him and he's working. now. And, and the crowd then asks him, what, is it, Lord, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is 28 and 29 of John 6, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. See, keeping Christ's work is believing the gospel. That's keeping Christ. Believing the gospel is what keeps us faithful. Believing the gospel is what keeps disciples repenting. Believing the gospel is what enables the sexually broken to conquer, preparing us for a future ruling. See, the promise and the reward are Christ himself. And the text says he will give to those who conquer and keep his work the morning star. Said, what, what is that? What's the morning star? Is he going to actually give us a planet? No. Revelation twenty two sixteen says this. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright and morning star. So Jesus 
intends to heal everything, to heal our sexual, our sexual brokenness. He does this by giving to his faithful disciples himself. Himself. And do you know why giving himself heals you? Do you, know, do you know why you can stand the gaze of his holy eyes upon you? Do you know why you're able to repent repeatedly with no fear of judgment falling on you? In these letters to the churches, every description of Jesus that's given at the opening of the letter is, is something. And all of those descriptions are, are, is the way that John saw Jesus in chapter 1. But they're all descriptions that, that were, were written to these churches. And it was something that they needed to hear. There was something about the characteristic of Christ that that church needed to hear. And so for Thyatira, it's his eyes. It's his eyes that are a flame of fire. That, 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 that he sees you truly and intimately. But it's also his feet that are like burnished bronze. So what does that mean? Well, in verse 15 of chapter 1 of, of Revelation, it's, it's his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. See, when was Jesus' feet ever in a furnace? When... So you know, you, know the, you know the story of Daniel. You know the story of the three Hebrew boys and, and how, the, how, how Nebuchadnezzar threw them into the furnace and, and uh, he, he looks to see what, what's going on with them and, oh, there are four men in the furnace. And the fourth one looks like one of the sons of God. Three men come out. The fourth one stayed. Who is that? That's Jesus. Yeah, see, that's the Sunday school answer. You know it. Yeah. Yeah. It's Jesus. Jesus, he's the one who stayed in the furnace. He's the one. See, the reason Jesus can give you himself and heal you is because he has already walked through the furnace of God's judgment for you. Hallelujah. See, the reason you can stand the gaze of his holy eyes upon you is because while in the furnace of God's wrath on the cross, the Father took his eyes off. Jesus as he was bearing our sin. The reason you and I can repent repeatedly for the repeating sins we commit is because Jesus took the repeated blows of God's judgment in fists and whipped. He took those repeated blows upon his body for our sins. See, it is, if you're sexually broken, if you're sexually broken, that's the love that your heart needs. That's the love your heart is searching for. And that's, that is only, you only find that in Jesus Christ, not another human. So if you're suffering from, if you, if you, if you are, are same-sex attracted, Jesus sees you. And he's calling you to not fall to the seduction of Jezebel. Because life's ultimate goal is not sexual fulfillment. But it's having Jesus. See, the goal, the goal of your faith isn't to become opposite sex attracted, but it's to become like Jesus. He is your bright and morning star. And what about the church? What kind of church are we? Are we seeing through Jesus' eyes? Do our works, faith, love, and service, and patient endurance lead us to graciously contend for the sexually broken? Are we full of grace and truth like Jesus 
See, the church must not be indifferent. It can't be indifferent to the cultural marketing and manipulation of our sexual brokenness, because that's exactly what's happening, friends. That's exactly what's taking place. There's, there's, it's, it's Jezebel. Oh, yeah. And she just, she just takes a whole lot of forms. You know, but don't tolerate Jezebel. Your sexual brokenness, that's not your inheritance. See, Jesus is our reward. So stand fast. Stand fast. They might call you names, they might, but stand fast. You know, they might, they might protest you, but stand fast. You know, you know, there might be family members who won't talk to you. And that breaks your heart. But they need to hear the truth, and they need to know the truth. And it's that grace. It's the grace that is in the space of repentance. That's, that's what should shape the church for graciously calling and discipling the sexually broken. And I've got one more thing, and, 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 it's, just, and it's, just, it's just an illustration from the early church, the early church letters. And, you know, some of those are they're, they're so profound. And there's one, the epistle to Diognetus. And here he, he describes the winsomeness of the early church. But he says this. He says, Christians are not distinguished from other men by country, language, nor by the customs which they observe. And it is while following the customs of the natives in clothing, food, and the rest of ordinary life that they display to us their wonderful and admittedly striking way of life. They marry like everyone else and they have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They share a common table, but not a common bed. They exist in the flesh, but they do not live by the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws all the while surpassing the laws by their lives. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are poor, yet make many rich. They lack everything, yet they overflow in everything. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they are glorified. They are spoken ill of, and yet are justified. They are reviled, but blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if raised from the dead. They are assailed by the Jews as barbarians. They are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are able to give in, aren't able to give, are unable to give any reason for their hatred. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is in the body, that is what Christians are in the world. The soul loves the flesh that hates it as well as its parts. Christians, in the same way, love those that hate them. Yeah, see, Jesus is the cure for our sexual brokenness, and it's a good news this morning that he calls sexually broken people to be his disciples, loving them enough to change them. And because he stood in the furnace of God's judgment for us, we can stand in these days. Amen. Amen. Father, your help is available to us more than we are able to recognize. And we are grateful to you that you call us. Lord, help us now to come before you and to receive from you 10,000 charms that are found in Jesus' arms, who is the lover of our souls. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.